0: Hey everybody, this is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're bringing you a special treat, an episode of our brand new other podcast, Invention. That's right. It is an
1: exploration of human techno history, one invention at a time. New inventions, old
0: inventions, ancient inventions. Uh, Each episode, a different exploration. We're so excited about this new show. We think you're going to love it. We really hope you do. But the really important thing is... Don't just listen to this episode. Go wherever you can and click subscribe. Get yourself subscribed so you will get future episodes when they come out, and they will be publishing every Monday. That's right. If you need a little
1: help subscribing, I will make sure that the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com has some links out to some of the bigger sites uh, where you can definitely subscribe. And then once you've you've subscribed to Invention, you can rate and review Invention as well.
0: You know, if you want to consider us releasing a brand new podcast, a free podcast at no cost to you, sort of our Christmas gift to you, you can give us a gift in return and it's clicking that subscribe button. Don't just listen, subscribe. That's right. And the gift we're giving you
1: is this episode about the guillotine and so much more to come. Like there's going to be an episode on sunglasses uh, in the future, an episode on roads. I'm hoping to do one on the saxophone. The sky's the limit. And then, of course, you guys will get to inform what we're recording as well. So we hope you enjoy our
0: exploration of the guillotine. Hey, welcome to Invention. I'm Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And you might know Robert and I from our other show, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, our other show in the How Stuff Works Network. But today, you apparently have somehow wandered into our brand new curiosity store of inventions where we explore human ingenuity for good, for ill, all of the stuff that comes out of our imaginations and becomes the technology we use every day or maybe just read about in history books.
1: Yes, the hallowed halls of technological, systematic, and cultural invention, the very human machines,
0: customs, and systems that altered the course of history. And today we're talking about one of the most useful inventions of all time. It's got to be the, <laughs> and Robert, before I say it, do you say it like a French guy's name or like what a fish breathes with? Uh, I go with
1: guillotine because it sounds a little more like a, an open-faced sandwich that way. And also it has the, the ghee has more of a sound to it.
0: Yeah, I like how it sounds kind of like the, the, the minotaur, the guillotine. Yeah. Uh, but but apparently guillotine in English is also somewhat acceptable pronunciation. I, I don't think there's a firm uh, ruling one way or another from the lords of English pronunciation.
1: Now, one thing is for certain uh, as we, we venture into this world of the guillotine, uh, beheadings themselves are just a time-honored way for one human being to kill another. It's a wound that still can't be repaired, and it is without question certain death.
0: Now, one thing I was thinking about to illustrate this is, what would you even say is the, quote, cause of death in a beheading?
1: (laughs) So, well, blood loss, loss of oxygen to the brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically, it just cuts off... It cuts off your all your plumbing systems from all of your uh, your, your 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 thinking systems
0: yeah it make, it makes you think about how often when you hear phrases like clinically dead that can refer to something about circulation like the cessation of the heartbeat mm-hmm. um, but yeah so when you separate the head from the body I guess you've got to be really rigorous about what you mean by dead though I guess it also happens pretty quickly so you don't have to worry about it too much but yeah all the blood comes out of the head immediate loss of blood pressure which means the brain can't get oxygen which means the brain can can't work.
1: Yeah, and it's something that's just cemented in our mythology as well, right? I mean, you want to kill a vampire, you want to kill a Medusa, you want to he- kill a Highlander, what do you do? <laughs> you cut their head off. There is something just supernaturally potent about this form of death.
0: Well, I think that's absolutely true and you see that in a lot of archaeological finds of beheadings from human history. Like, here's a kind of strange fact. A lot of times when you find beheaded humans from ages past, there appears to be evidence that the people were beheaded Posthumously. Why did that happen? There are a lot of ways you could explain it. I mean, that you would take a dead person and cut off their head. Maybe there's some sort of ritual function going on here. It might be a human sacrifice. Maybe there's some kind of symbolic uh, form of justice being done if it's the corpse of a criminal or an enemy or something. But a lot of times it appears like it might be a form of apotropaic magic, Mm -hmm. the kind of magic you would use to ward off evil or bad spirits in the same way that you might find a uh, you know, a skeleton from hundreds of years ago with an iron rod driven through its heart or with a brick in its mouth and say the tombs underneath Venice.
1: Yeah, there's a, like a dismantling of the the, the individual that, uh, that seems evident in these acts. Um, you know, and we, we see acts of ritual decapitation dating back – Thousands of years. For instance, there's evidence in Brazil that dates back to at least 9,000 BCE, and it's uh, in, in it we find a human skull draped in amputated hands, palm side down, covering the face as if uh, as if in grief.
0: That's from a place called Lapa do Santo in uh, in South America, in Brazil, and a lot of bones have been discovered there. And it's not always easy to determine how to read the intention behind what you see in these people. But the, yeah, there there were all kinds of forms of of apparent posthumous mutilation going on in the way these bones are arranged for example sometimes you'll find skulls there full of finger bones inside the skulls what was going on what made the people want to do that it seems like it may well have formed some kind of magical intention but Mm -hmm. what was it indeed we can only guess now, another kind of significance that beheading has often had uh, in the ancient world was that it was one of the many forms of execution practiced, of course, in ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, and in fact, our terms decapitation and capital punishment both come from the Latin from caput meaning head. So like capital punishment is punishment of the head or that you you pay, you pay for a crime with your head by separating it from the other stuff. Uh, and there's some evidence that the ancient Greeks and Romans – viewed beheading as not a particularly harsh punishment, but more as a particularly noble and honorable form of execution. And you can see strains of this thinking carried into much more recent times. Like when beheading was deployed as an execution method throughout the history of England, not always, but it was most often reserved for the aristocracy, while common criminals might more often be killed in what was considered a less dignified way, like hanging.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously – Beheadings in general have probably been occurring as, as long as we've had uh, weapons fine enough to uh, inflict the blow, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as long as we had, you know, something that could knock or cut a head off. And then when you start looking at these, uh, the, 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 the use of, the, of, a, of a sword or an axe in execution, you know, a lot of it comes down to the craftsmanship of that weapon, but also the skill of the individual using it.
0: Yeah, that, that's a real kicker, isn't it? I mean, when you contract somebody to do a job for you, a lot of times, if you don't have a previous relationship with them, you know, you don't know what kind of work they're going to do. You, you want to find those people you can trust, but it's hard to find a trustworthy executioner that you know is going to cut your head off right.
1: Right. Like, you've really got to put yourself in the um, in, in the shoes of the condemned here, right? Uh, you know, obviously, you don't want to be stoned to death. You don't, you don't want to be thrown into that burlap sack with two wild animals and thrown into the river. You would probably prefer a nice, clean beheading, but nobody wants a less than perfect beheading. If the local warlord is doing it, you know, that's one thing. Uh, You know, unless, however, you're worried about the warlord inflicting an intentionally less than perfect stroke, you know, out of uh, personal malice. Uh, if If it's a professional executioner that's doing the honors, well, that's either really good or really bad, depending on how you look at it. Like the idea of a trained specialist doing uh, the, the deed, that sounds good. But on the other hand, uh, death via the sort of person who either seeks this line of work out or is not suited for any other form of labor, <laughs> that's a little uh, f- uh, frightening, I would say. Plus, do you really want to be toward the bottom of an executioner's list for the day Oh no! after they're tired from swinging that big old axe?
0: Like it's your turn on Friday afternoon.
1: Yeah. Like you kind of – I want to be up there. I would want to be up there first. Let him get that that first blow in on me.
0: I must admit I don't think I'd ever much considered the horrors of a weak strike from the executioner until Game of Thrones came around. Oh, yes. And then I suddenly began to think like, oh, yes, this could go very wrong. But – George R.R. R. Martin did not make up this concept, obviously, of, of being weak at swinging the executioner's sword or the axe. History is replete with stories of botched beheadings and they are horrific and unfortunately sometimes kind of funny. I want to tell you a couple. Uh, this one's not so funny. This – concerns Mary the Queen of Scots. So, during the reign of Protestant Queen Elizabeth I of England in the 16th century, there was obviously a lot of anxiety about succession because Elizabeth had been born to King Henry VIII and his second wife Anne Boleyn after Henry's first marriage to Catherine of Aragon had been annulled. And obviously lots of people at the time, especially some Catholics, had opinions about that, right? And Elizabeth's cousin, Mary Stuart was born to James V of Scotland who was descended from a legitimate royal line. And so many Catholic supporters thought, well, maybe Mary actually has a more legitimate claim to the throne than Elizabeth does. And so Mary was eventually implicated in an assassination plot against Elizabeth in 1586. At least she was allegedly involved in it. And she was sentenced to execution in 1587. So you've got Mary Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots, going to her execution and the 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 story goes that she's blindfolded and she gets helped to the block and the executioner wearing all black raises up his axe to kill her. But instead of cutting through her neck, he misses and he hits her on the head. And then some report that she murmurs sweet Jesus in shock before the executioner raises his axe a second time and then strikes again and still fails to cut her head off completely. And finally he, quote, just sawed through what remained of her neck. Oh, that's 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 rough for Mary.
1: Yeah. And this, you know, this is presumed uh, main event uh, beheading here. So, right. This is before a royal audience. Right. So this would have to be either an act of just just, just an utterly inept executioner or, or one that is intentionally doing a bad job out of malice. like there seems to be very little room in between.
0: It's hard to understand what happened here because, we, you know, we only have accounts from the time which may not even be fully reliable. Mm-hmm. We're relying on what people told us they saw there. right?
1: And there could be some uh, objective in crafting a version of the tale that sounds more inept than it actually was. But
0: it actually gets worse oh. because apparently, so it's described sometimes that the executioner appeared horrified at what was going on. But the headsman, after he got her head off, he took hold of the severed head and he held it up in front of the crowd so he could hold up the severed head and say, God save Queen Elizabeth. But he grasped Mary's head by the hair and it turned out the hair was a wig. So the head fell down and rolled away, leaving him holding only a hacked up bloody wig while proclaiming his true queen. And then another part of the story, maybe maybe not to be believed, is that after Mary's head rolled away, her lips kept moving as if she was talking or praying.
1: Okay. Some of that sounds like it might have been embellished. But it also sounds like this guy was a real hack. No pun intended.
0: Well, I got an even worse hack for you. Okay. Because there was a 17th century English executioner named Jack Ketch. Ketch spelled as uh, like ketchup. Ketch, yeah. Or like uh, what's the, the, the kid in the Pokemans?
1: I have no idea.
0: <laughs> Our very knowledgeable producer, Paul, just tells me uh, it is Ash Ketchum. Okay. All I right. guess he's got a Ketchum all, right? It's like Jack Ketchum, right? The, the horror writer. That's what comes to my mind. Oh, I don't – well, anyway, this is Jack Ketch. Okay. K-E-T-C-H. So Jack Ketch, birthdate unknown, died in 1686, who was notorious for being a complete screw-up at his job and bungling executions. A couple of examples – in 1683, Ketch performed the beheading of William Lord Russell, who was convicted for treason in his, role of, uh, in his role in the Rye House plot, which was against King Charles II of England. And Ketch's beheading of Russell was reportedly just this clumsy horror with Ketch whacking Russell again and again with the axe but repeatedly failing to get his head off. And apparently after this, Ketch defended himself by complaining that Russell wouldn't hold still. <laughs> And then you get the second one, uh, later James, Duke of Monmouth. He went to the block for the Monmouth Rebellion of 1685, and he tried to pay catch not to screw up his execution. He's recorded as saying, quote, Here are six guineas for you. Pray, do your business well. Do not serve me as you did my Lord Russell. I have heard you struck him three or four times. Then Monmouth gave three more guineas to his servant who was standing nearby and told his servant to pay catch – only if Ketch did the beheading correctly. And then Ketch said, I hope I shall. Then Monmouth asked to feel the axe blade and he did and he complained that oh, this is too dull. And Ketch said, no, it's sharp enough. It'll be heavy enough. So Monmouth got down in place to accept his fate and Ketch brought the axe down on Monmouth. And at this point, it is reported That after he got hit, Monmouth lifted his head up and turned around and glared at Ketch angrily. (laughs) (laughs) Then he got back down so Ketch could hit him again. And Ketch hit him several more times, failing each time to behead him. Then Ketch got frustrated and tried to walk away and quit in the middle of the execution while Monmouth was still alive. But the crowd yelled at him and told him to go back and finish it. So finally he went back after some more blows uh, and the use of a knife. He finally managed to get the Duke's head off.
1: Well, that's awful. This guy is a true hack
0: wonder if that's where the word hack comes from. Perhaps. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but so you had people whose job it was to administer what I guess was supposed to be the more humane form of execution at the time. I mean, this is different than being, you know, uh, tortured and hanged and drawn and quartered and all that. But this is obviously not going the way it's supposed to. And if we're going inspired by the Greek and Roman model, something is obviously wrong here. Like, not only is it unnecessarily painful this does not really seem like an honorable death this seems right.
1: humiliating yeah this there's nothing noble about this you know it's, this is not a finely crafted instrument wielded by a um, by by an expert practitioner this is just a clumsy exercise in horror but what if Mechanical controls could be set in place mm. the same level of uh, perfection, regardless of whoever you know happens to be wearing the hood, how tired they are, what sort of uh, weapon they 're using, or what sort of sick stuff they 're into. Uh, a machine that cannot get tired it can 't hesitate or engage in unfair punishment it 's not going to judge you based on uh, your your royal or commoner status. A good blade, some gravity in a simple frame with a neck lock. Well, that would be the guillotine. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss some precursors to the guillotine and the guillotine
0: itself. All right, we're back. So the guillotine of late 18th century France, which I'm sure you've heard about before, that was uh, involved in the French Revolution, the Reign of Terror, the First French Republic, that guillotine was... Not the first human head removal machine, not by a long shot. And we're not saying it was, you know, that it was predated by people swinging an axe or a sword with their hands. Of course it was. But there were organized machines for doing this job more efficiently and in a more consistent way before the guillotine was instituted in France.
1: Right, And, and they worked along the same principles. They, maybe they weren't quite as refined, uh, but essentially the idea was there though we
0: should say that it was only in the aftermath of the, the French Revolution that people began referring to decapitation machines as guillotines. That's where the name comes from.
1: Yes, they had uh, equally less refined names. They had more uh, grisly names, one finds.
0: We'll meet a couple in a moment. So as for who invented the first general decapitation machine, this is totally unknown, lost to history. And in fact, we don't even know for sure how many societies used a device like this. there There are a lot of tales, but many of these tales might not even be true. We don't know for sure.
1: right. And then how often is the individual uh, celebrated? For creating such a thing, uh, as we'll discover, uh, the naming of the, the guillotine uh, doesn't really relate to the individual or individuals that uh, created it.
0: Right. I mean, a lot of people who create execution devices don't want to be associated with right. them. Right. And when you find the people who do want to be associated with them or don't mind, you've got to kind of wonder about those people. <laughs> but, um, so— there are a couple of known mechanical beheading devices from England that predated the French guillotine. And one is known as the Halifax gibbet. Mm-hmm. So the Hal- Halifax is a town in West Yorkshire in England. And it had this infamous beheading machine known as the Halifax gibbet, which was allegedly used mostly to punish petty theft. So people would steal some small sum of money or something worth not very much, some cloth or something. And into the Halifax gibbet they would go. It was described in an 1837 history by an author named William White uh, in the following way, quote, The executions always took place on the Great Market Day in order to strike the more Terror into the neighborhood. When the criminal was brought to the Gibbet, which stood a little way out of the town, where part of the stone platform may still be seen on Gibbet Hill, the execution was performed by means of an engine, which was raised upon a platform, four feet high and 13 feet square, faced on every side with stone and ascended by a flight of steps. In the middle of this platform was placed two upright pieces of timber 15 feet high, joined at the top by a transverse beam. Within these was a square block of wood, four feet and a half long, which moved up and down by means of grooves made for that purpose. To the lower part of the sliding block was fastened an iron axe of the weight of seven pounds and twelve ounces. The axe thus fixed was drawn up to the top by a cord and pulley. At the end of the cord was a pin, which, being fixed to the block, kept it suspended till the moment of execution, when the culprit, having placed his head on the block, the pin was withdrawn, and his head was instantly severed from his body. If the offender was condemned for stealing an ox, a sheep, or a horse, the end of the rope was fastened to the beast, which, being driven, pulled out the pin and thus became the executioner. In other cases, the bailiff or his servant cut the rope and allowed the axe to descend.
1: So a little unnecessary complexity involving farm animals, but otherwise the basic principles of the guillotine as we've come to know it.
0: Yeah, it's more or less there. There, there might be some design refinements we come mm-hmm. on later, but th- this is the idea. It's, the, it's a reliable, consistent machine that's not going to mess up.
1: Right. And of course, it doesn't sound like this was necessarily a custom blade, or maybe it was, but it's very much based on the design of an axe blade.
0: Yeah, and it, it, when you see illustrations, it looks like just a large axe head on the bottom of a huge wooden block mm-hmm. uh, so this beheading machine of halifax was famous enough that the english poet john taylor referenced it alongside the notoriously tough police of kingston upon hull in a poem uh, that, that i thought was pretty good he writes there is a proverb and a prayer withal that we may not to three strange places fall from hull from halifax from hell tis thus from all these three good lord deliver us at Halifax the law so sharp doth deal that whoso more than one threepence doth steal, they have a lin that wondrous quick and well sends thieves all headless unto heaven or hell. From hell each man says, Lord, deliver me, because from hell can no redemption be. Men may escape from Hull and Halifax, but sure in hell there is a heavier tax. Sounds pretty grim. Well, I like how it it sort of captures two themes there. One is that how hal- the Halifax Gibbet is deadly and something to be feared, but it also contrasts it with the supposed tortures of hell. I-, I guess again emphasizing that well, it's not as torturous as many of the other methods that are being used.
1: Yeah, he's almost describing it like it's a like it's a plane ticket, too. <laughs> to uh, greater rewards or suffering depending on uh, how one supernatural revenge fantasy is playing out here. But on the other hand, I like that it is to a certain extent, farm animals, uh, uh, you know, notwithstanding, it is to a certain extent saving the horrors of an afterlife for those imagined afterlifes and not trying to um, embody them too much in the act of execution itself.
0: Yeah. Now whether that's actually a good thing or not, we can discuss later, but it does seem to be there's at least a there's at least a superficial kind of humaneness to right. it, even though it seems to be being lumped on people who who commit extremely petty yeah, crimes yeah. and not in no matter what you think really probably uh deserving of death. But uh, there are some strange stories about how people reacted to what happened with the, uh, at the Halifax gibbet. The historian Thomas Wright tells a legend, quote, of a country woman who was riding by the gibbet on her hampers to the market just at the execution of a criminal when the axe chopped his neck through with such force that the head jumped into one of her hampers or, as others say, seized her apron with the teeth and they're stuck for some time. <laughs> I I don't believe that's true or at least the
1: teeth I don't believe. Again, we're coming back to the sort of inherent uh, comedy. I mean
0: true gallows humor uh, that comes with beheading uh, executions. Uh, but there's an interesting observation from the Halifax historian John Crabtree, who has a sort of attitude about what stories like this mean. He writes, quote, It is useless employing words about this affair, but the circumstance may serve to show with what apathy the country people regarded this mode of punishment. Their minds were evidently hardened by such exhibitions, and the fact develops the inadequacy of such awful administrations of justice to produce that proper moral and salutary." Effect which might have been anticipated. Such scenes, oft-repeated, appear to harden rather than soften, to stupefy rather than awaken the sensibilities of man's nature. And I think we should come back to that thought later on. All right, so
1: what else do we have in terms of uh, proto-guillotine machines?
0: Well, uh, a quicker story is just a copy, essentially, of the Halifax uh, gibbet known as the Scottish Maiden. So James Douglas, the fourth Earl of Morton, who was the ruler of Scotland from 1572 to 1578, he was... He was alleged at some point to have introduced the decapitation machine to his country of Scots inspired by the Halifax gibbet. Allegedly, he at some point traveled through Halifax and he was so inspired by the gibbet that he thought, well, I should share this same technology with my countrymen. So a similar machine was built out of oak, and it could be transported around the country to perform beheadings wherever, but it was often accepting the condemned at Edinburgh. And according to the National Museums of Scotland, crimes that could get you sent to the Scottish Maiden included murder, incest, stealing, treason, adultery, forgery, and robbery. But there's an ironic twist. Uh, So – James Douglas, the 4th Earl of Morton, was a supporter of James VI. And Morton opposed the Catholic faction of Mary, Queen of Scots, who we discussed earlier, Mary Stuart. And he was eventually implicated in a plot to murder Mary's second husband, Lord Darnley, and was put to death in June 1581, decapitated by the Scottish maiden that he brought to Scotland. Ah, there's your uh, poetic justice. Uh, And legends of that kind will appear again and again in this episode, actually. Well, yes, and even beyond this episode,
1: because isn't that a a common theme? The the, the man destroyed by his own
2: invention, by his own machine.
0: It happens enough in the movies that you should think it happens more often. (laughs) In reality, though, in the movies, it's especially common when that invention is some kind of hybrid animal. Like I created a shark ape and, you know, it swings from the trees taking bites out of people. (laughs) Who, Who could have known my shark ape would turn on me? And
1: yet it always happens. All right. So as we've been discussing, there were similar devices already used in Europe and had been for centuries uh, before the guillotine came around. But the individual who is often credited as the inventor of the guillotine uh, is a French surgeon and physiologist, uh, Antoine Louis, who lives 1723
0: through 1792. Yeah, he is often credited as the inventor, though I, based on what I was reading, it appears to me it was maybe designed by some sort of committee of which Louis was the leader, right? And this is actually all the more fitting uh,
1: when we really get to the heart of the guillotine here, because it is this this thing that is uh, it is this u- utilization of technology and this there's a, there's an, uh, an air of civility to it, uh, this this taking something uh, that is kind of that is rather barbaric and making it a little less
0: so. Well, it's bureaucratic violence. Yes, it, exactly. It, it very much embodies the idea of retributive violence by the state taken out of the emotional hands of the single executioner and placed into the hands of a disembodied machine that is created by a committee through drafts. Yes. You know, we have another
1: episode uh, that we're recording this week on vending machines. And it's amazing the, the similarities involved here. These, this, these, Sometimes these struggles over what exactly is happening when a machine does the bidding of a human? Mm-hmm. If a machine is vending, say, blasphemous literature, as we discussed in this other episode, then who is at fault for said literature sale? <laughs> and, uh, and there's a sense of that here, too. It's like the bureaucracy has uh, condemned you to death. The machine is actually doing the execution. Uh, we're just merely you know, pushing the button, pulling the string, etc.,
0: to carry out this judgment. Right. But we do at least have Antoine Louis to associate with the creation of the machine, even if it wasn't just him alone. Uh, But because of his association with it, it was often uh, – early on, it was called names, not the guillotine yet, but names like the Louisette or the Louison which doesn't have as much of a ring to it. Oh, I kind of like it. <laughs> I I could see executions by the Louisette. Yeah, I guess it would have
1: grown on us. But uh, it, at any rate, later it definitely came to be uh, named after uh, Joseph Ignace Guillotin, uh, who lived uh, 1738 through 1814. Uh, he was a, a physician. Uh, he was a, a national assembly member. And he played a major role in passing legislation that made death by machine the law. The loose idea here is that it would, this kind of legislation would provide the best possible version of beheading to all classes of society. And uh, we do have to point out that despite some urban legends out there, uh, Guillotine himself uh, was uh, not killed by his own machine. And he wasn't actually a huge fan of
0: execution either. It's not like he was a a huge uh, execution enthusiast. Well, no, exactly the opposite. Guillotine opposed the death penalty. He wanted the abolition of the death penalty, but he didn't think that he could accomplish that directly. Right. This seemed the
1: the best reasonable next step, right? It's like if I can't – we can't eradicate it. We're going to have –
0: Habit, we might as well make it clean. And uh, and fair to all involved. According to a popular legend, Guillotin was born when his pregnant mother was out walking one day and she overheard the screams of a condemned criminal being broken on the wheel. And breaking Uh. on the wheel was, you know, a classic death by torture type method where a person would be stretched out on a wheel in a kind of starfish pose and they'd have their limbs broken with an iron rod or with a club. Uh, Just insane brutality.
1: So he was very much opposed to that sort of thing not only just the bar- the barbaric nature of the execution but the public nature of it the idea that, that that women and children uh just innocent uh bystanders might just walk through town and witness such uh s- such horror so he was thinking maybe if
0: less children end up watching this the better
1: Yes, and make it yeah it's more systematic it's more uh, you know the act itself is is less flashy and then we're just going to make it less
0: for performance so Guillotin was not out there lobbying to get this machine named after his family. No, no. It just, uh, it ended up sticking. Now, a cool little
1: fact here that sounds like something right out of an Alan Moore comic book, but along with Benjamin Franklin, uh, Guillotin uh, investigated the work of Franz Mesmer, of mesmerism, you know, the uh, uh, the, the the form of hypnotism uh, that we had back in the day. Uh, and they investigated him on behalf of King Louis
0: Sixteenth. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, So another way of thinking – you alluded to this a minute ago, Robert, like the idea that it would be the best method for all the classes. So another way of thinking about the motivation for the institution of the guillotine – At this time in history was that it supposedly extended the democratic and egalitarian principles of the French Revolution to common criminals, essentially extending them the courtesy of the honorable beheading that was more often reserved for nobles and aristocrats instead of more shameful and common and painful deaths like hanging, burning or breaking on the wheel, which you were more likely to get if you were just some lower class petty criminal. Right. Now, as for the idea uh, Guillotin had thinking that this would shield children from the gruesome practice of execution, unfortunately, this did not work out. I was reading a section from a, a book called Children's Toys of Bygone Days, A History of Playthings of All Peoples from Prehistoric Times to the 19th Century by Carl Grober, published in 1928. And uh, the author writes, quote, the worst monstrosity of the kind was the outcome of the French Revolution, which indeed was overrich in aberrations of taste. The toy shops put on the market little guillotines with which little patriots could be head figures of aristocrats. Oh. There still survive some specimens of this pretty and diverting machine, one of which bears the date 1794, and he's got an illustration. These were not models but pure toys, and in proof of this, we have the king's evidence from one whom we should never suspect of wishing to give so bloodthirsty a toy to his little son. And here, the author is speaking of the romantic poet Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. (laughs) So Gruber tells the story – that in December 1793, Goethe wrote a letter to his mother in Frankfurt asking if she would buy a toy guillotine for his little son. And she replied, Dear son, anything I can do to please you is gladly done and gives me joy, but to buy such an infamous implement of murder, that I will not do at any price. If I had authority, the maker should be put in the stocks and I would have the machine publicly burnt by the common executioner. And I guess this is sort of the 1790s equivalent of like asking your grandmother to buy you a copy of Doom for Christmas in the 1990s. Yeah, well, I'm
1: glad that you brought up uh, Doom here uh, and just be- because it's-, it's easy for us to look back on this account and think, oh, these children of a more uh, you know, barbarous age. But go to any toy store and look at the machine gun based uh, uh, toys uh, yeah. that are on display there, all the various guns, like true true murder weapons, um, and not even methods of uh, bureaucratic execution, but weapons of just wanton violence. Uh, these are all represented in toys even today. Uh, likewise, I can't help but think back on uh, how much I wanted the slime pit when I was a kid. I, do, what is know. that? This was a Masters of the Universe playset, the device, and basically you would lock He-Man or some other... Uh, figure into the machine, and it was like shaped like a skull, and then it would dump slime on top of the head of the poor hero. And it was, I think, maybe the actual lore of it was like it would make them mutate or something. But it was very much, uh, it was very much like a guillotine, except instead of a blade, it was slime. It was like clearly an instrument of execution of, of ritualized death for your toys. So you're arranging an
0: execution for He-Man.
1: Exactly. So <laughs> I, you know, the, the, the idea of a toy guillotine, it makes perfect sense yeah. uh, it, we can't we can only distance ourselves from such an idea
0: so much though i also have to wonder i somehow detect between the lines this could have been one of those situations where and robert i bet you're familiar with this where a dad buys or requests a toy for his child because secretly he wants to play with oh it. Yes. Uh, uh, in fact goethe wrote in faust quote Age is no second childhood. Age makes plain children we were, true children we remain. Again,
1: uh, uh, much like it is today.
0: Now, we mentioned that Guillotin was uh, responsible for introducing legislation that would eventually lead the French National Assembly to say, "Okay, we're only going to be killing people by beheading machine now. That's going to be the new method of execution. That's what's humane. That's what the state should be up to. And so I think in just a minute, we should turn to the machine itself. But I just wanted quickly before we do that to discuss where it is that this rumor came from, that Guillotin was killed by the machine that he recommended putting in place for executions in France. And I think I know maybe a few threads of where the story came from. Obviously, we had that ironic story of the Earl of Morton earlier, right? Right. So we can Um, see how that might have influenced or confused the the telling. Right. But then there are a couple of other examples. So Dr. Antoine Louis, the secretary of the Academy of Medicine and physician to King Louis, the uh, One who we talked about earlier chairing that committee that designed the device, he was actually temporarily condemned to die in the machine that he designed or helped design, though he escaped this fate uh, basically during a, a change of power. So he narrowly escaped going to the guillotine himself. And then King Louis Sixteenth, who was interested in mechanical engineering, is said to have made refinements to the design of the guillotine, like recommending an angled blade while he was still in power before the device was eventually turned on the king himself and on his wife Marie Antoinette. And so there's another kind of like creator and then killed by his creation irony there since he appar- apparently or at least allegedly offered refinements to the design. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, well, on that note, we're going to take one more break, and when we come back, we'll discuss the machine itself in more detail, and
0: we'll also discuss its legacy. All right, we're back. So now we're at the machine itself, the French guillotine of the 1780s and onward, and the question is – was it actually built? Well, of course it yes, was. this
1: one was definitely built. Some of the inventions <laughs> we, we, we're discussing on this
0: show, uh, you know, maybe didn't get out of the blueprint phase. Uh, this definitely saw action. So after the legal standard of execution by machine was approved by the National Assembly in 1791, the construction of the machine was delegated to a politician named Pierre-Louis uh who I'm, – I'm always going to struggle with that name. So I'll, I'll just call him Pierre here. Uh, he apparently had trouble finding a contractor who could build the machine since no one wanted their name associated with it and eventually found a taker. It was a taker from Germany and so the guillotine was constructed by a German harpsichord maker <laughs> named Tobias Schmidt. Uh, apparently, he also supplied a leather sack that would catch heads. Now, you could just, just got to wonder about Tobias. <laughs> I
1: can just imagine the scenario. It's like, uh, so, honey, what are you working on today? Oh, I, I got this new contract. It you know it pays well. It's going to really help us out next month. Uh, oh, uh, uh, who are you putting a harps-
0: harpsichord for? Well, it's not quite a harpsichord. Well, I'm just imagining <laughs> in, in his shop while he's working on the guillotine that harpsichord music is constantly <laughs> playing. Ding, 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 ding. Anyway, according to the memoirs of the French executioner Henri Clement Sanson, in uh, 1876, Sanson came from a line of uh, – a long line of executioners. And he so he has these memoirs about his family's exploits, cutting off heads and performing executions in France. And his memoirs are considered probably only partially reliable. But his up-close description of the workings of the guillotine is fairly straightforward. So I, see, I feel like he's probably on the right track here.
1: All right. I'm going to read part of this and uh, I'm going gonna,
2: I'm gonna to go for an executioner's voice here. Oh, do it. On a scaffold from seven to eight feet high, two parallel bars are made fast at one end. Their top part is united by a strong crossbar. To this crossbar is added a thick iron ring, in which is passed a rope, which fixes and retains a ram. This is perpendicularly armed with a sharp and broad blade, which gradually becomes broader on all its surface, so that instead of striking perpendicularly, it strikes sideways, so that there is not an inch of the blade that does not serve. The ram weighs from 60 to 80 pounds, and its weight is doubled when it begins to slide down. It is enclosed in the groove of the bars. A spring makes it fast to the left bar. A band of iron descends along the outside of the same bar, and the handle is locked to a ring with a padlock so that no accident is possible, and the weight only falls when the executioner interferes. To a way plank, strong straps are fastened, by which the criminal is attached under the armpits and over the legs so that the body cannot move. As soon as the way plank goes down, the head, being between the bars, is supported by a rounded crossbar. The executioner's assistants lower another rounded crossbar, the head being thus grooved in a perfect circle, which prevents it from moving in any way. This precaution is indispensable in regard to the terrible inconveniences of fear. The executioner then touches the spring. The whole affair is done so quickly that only the thump of the blade when it slides down informs the spectators that the culprit is no longer of the living. The head falls into a basket full of bran and the body is pushed into another wicker basket lined with very thick leather. That's a heck of a reading,
0: Robert. Yeah, that was going to do a number on my throat. But oh, uh, I'm know. sorry. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe I should have taken part of it. But I was just enjoying listening to your Henri Clement. Well, there is a precision in his <laughs> in his description of the act uh, uh-huh. that, that uh, I felt
1: like I had to had to capture.
0: Now, obviously, so he's described how the device works. Now, but they had to test it out before they could make sure to to try it on a human, right? So, right. I, you know, you always wonder, like, how do you test a guillotine? You put a watermelon in there? Do you Gallagher it?
1: Well, I suppose you could, but it's kind of a waste of a good melon, and Mm -hmm. ultimately you want to test it on the real thing, right? So they use dead bodies. Oh, yeah. Also farm animals, like Mm. sheep and calves. Yeah. Because you just – I mean it makes sense. You want to make sure you're cutting through actual – vertebrate tissue there, and most notably the the neck. And then on April 25th, 1792, officials installed and used the guillotine for the first time.
0: Right. So the first victim of the French guillotine was Nicolas Jacques Beltier, who was a highwayman. And he was executed where the machine was erected at the Place de Greve. And there was, so a large crowd came out, obviously, to witness the first execution by the new machine. But it was reported that the crowd was somewhat unimpressed and they found the efficiency of the killing less entertaining than the forms of execution they were used to, even the more classic beheadings. Uh, nevertheless, over time, the executions at the guillotine became a very popular spectator event during the Reign of Terror and you know, and generally afterwards. When the guillotine was used, people would show up to watch. Mm-hmm.
1: So we see a little success here. Like it was clearly less dramatic. Uh, you know, there was less uh, theater in the act. And yet at the same time, few things are more dramatic in life than the ending of a life like this is people. I mean, you can understand why people would still turn out even if you had uh, made things uh, a little more
0: precise. Now, putting aside the question, I guess we, we can talk talk about in a minute over whether it's ever humane to just execute somebody. Was it actually true the, the the guillotine was a more refined, more humane version of execution than what came before. Was it was it an improvement if you were somebody who was interested in reducing the suffering of humankind? Yeah, I mean, you could,
1: again, you could say the concept is inherently controversial, but still others took issue with just how humane it was. So a Prussian doctor, Samuel Thomas uh, Summering, uh, who lived 1755 through 1830, he studied the cadavers of guillotine victims, and he argued that severed heads were still capable of feeling and sense. And he wrote an essay on this in 1795. Hmm. So he he was something of a polymath Uh, in addition to naming the 12 pairs of cranial nerves. He also invented a telegraphic system and made discoveries in paleontology, specifically with uh, pterodactyl fossils.
0: They're not dinosaurs, folks. They're That's right. a Different thing. <laughs> so this was, you know, this was not just a,
1: this wasn't just some crazy guy coming up and saying the heads are still alive. You know, he was he was making a you know, an expert argument that, like, I'm not sure that this is great what we're doing. Maybe it's a little, it's almost a little too precise.
0: Yeah. The core takeaway of his essay on the inhumanity of the guillotine was that we can't rule out that it's possible that a severed head could still. Be having experience could experience being severed
1: now we know, and there were a lot of tales of this happening right of of people uh running to check out the heads of the of the decapitated uh and various doctors checking in and seeing what was going on with the eyes There, right. there was a lot of interest in this to, in determining well it, you know what happens to consciousness at death like this was a perfect clinical exercise uh for uh for weighing in on it,
0: yeah, the classic tales about this I think get repeated the most often are like uh Seeing someone's cheeks flush with anger when they behold someone or who's someone who mocks them or something like mm-hmm. that or uh, or who slaps them in the face or thinking that a, that a severed head would be like uh, looking at people as if it recognized them yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and obviously there's a lot
1: of embellishment with these stories, but, but – We don't know how much to trust them. Yeah, we really don't know how much to trust them, but we do know today – that uh that any kind of activity seen in the the heads after death most of this is going to be reflective twitching of muscles so um basically coma and brain death are probably going to occur within 2 to 3 seconds of decapitation due to interruption of blood flow
0: to the brain so just the massive sudden drop in blood pressure yeah that's going to do it yeah
1: so any tales of like, uh, you know, confronting the head, having any kind of like moment of human uh, contact, even if it's just in the eyes, uh, it's pretty clear that that is all just uh, uh, embellishment of stories or just wishful
2: thinking on the part of the observer.
0: So what is the legacy of this machine, this, this machine of bureaucratic violence? And if we try to look at it from – with our perspective from today, with our hindsight and, you know, with, with the kind of value judgments we would make, was the guillotine a step forward or a step backward? Was it as uh, guillotin envisioned, a, a more humane uh, way of doing business when the state was just, you know, couldn't be convinced not to kill people? Or did it perhaps enable a worse state of affairs where more people could be sent to their deaths with impunity than would have been the case otherwise? Yeah, I think you could probably go either way on it. I mean,
1: one thing's for certain, it it changed the way executions were performed in France for nearly 200 years. It was actually used in France up until 1977. That's when the last execution occurred via guillotine before the outlying of capital punishment in 1981. Mm -hmm. It also took on symbolic weight. It's just this, this symbol of the reign of terror and perhaps to a larger extent, a symbol of systematically violent rebellion.
0: Yeah, I read one author point out – certainly not in defending the guillotine or the use of the guillotine, but just pointing out a kind of strange irony that the guillotine now to us symbolizes this, this horror, this horror period of bureaucratic violence, which it certainly was. But we look at that and we think of that period as a reign of terror but don't think the same way, say, about the Napoleonic Wars, which killed far more people than the guillotine ever did. Not that that makes the killings and the guillotine any less horrific. That's true. Now, you know one one thing
1: about the, the the weirdness of this whole situation that stands out. I mean, aside from just the inherently weird nature of a, of a beheading machine, a machine that cuts off heads, uh, there is still something highly symbolic going on here. Think to the means of an execution and you'll typically see an expression of, uh, of power involved. Say it's a physical strength or a you know, vengeful spirit or increasingly a culture's greatest technological achievements. Isn't it weird to think about how Uh, these methods climb the tree of developing technology. So starting with varying levels of tool proficiency, you know, axes and swords, weapons, uh, weapon crafting. Then we go into gunpowder, you know, uh, firing squads, electricity
0: and the electric chair. It is weird to trace through history execution methods just sort of like tracking with whatever's the most interesting new technology we have available.
1: Yeah, chemicals,
0: pharmaceuticals. I mean, why an electric chair? That is just so such a strange idea to even come up with,
1: yeah, uh, French philosopher uh, michel foucault uh, he he uh, weighed in on this and he pointed out that penal technology is of course an expression of power, but we also have to dwell on the fact that it does this through everyday technology, ubiquitous technology, so if it 's something like electricity or even, you know or even uh, you know pharmaceuticals chemicals uh, it's it's taking aspects of everyday life and turning them into the, uh, the, the, the system, the tool of, uh, of justice.
0: So like our everyday use of energy in the consumer economy, a constant reminder of the methods of death that the state can inflict upon people if they, if they don't stay in line. Exactly.
1: Now, uh, one small area of the legacy of the guillotine comes down to its use in medical terminology. Mm-hmm. So there are two primary means of amputation. Um, in terms of like amputating a limb or what have you. Uh, you have flap amputations in which flaps of flesh are left so that you can you know, fold them and close the stump uh, of the wound. And then there are guillotine amputations which, uh, which are more of a straight down affair with no immediate concerns for flap tissue. So in uh, a guillotine uh, amputation, it's more about cutting out infected tissue and making sure drainage, proper drainage occurs. And then secondary surgery is performed uh, to create the flap tissue to close
0: everything off into a stump. But obviously that's like a secondary appellation like yes you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't have called that guillotine cutting in the surgical sense before the guillotine right
1: but it is certainly an example where if you're you you, uh, you encounter this terminology now in 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 uh, medical science and uh, and it stems from the use of this execution device that being said there's a lot of medical terminology that uh, stems from various
0: weapons and so forth of course so i I want to come back to this question that we've been teasing throughout where You can't help but wonder if uh, Joseph ines Guillotin pushed us in exactly the wrong direction if he was actually against the death penalty and trying to institute more humane treatment of criminals. You know, it's hard not to notice that by sanitizing a horrible act, it often seems like you make the act easier to carry out. And I mean just think about how this applies to modern methods of state-sanctioned killing, everything from lethal injection to drone strikes. Does the sanitizing and distancing and depersonalization opportunity provided by lethal technology encourage us to to make ourselves able to kill more while feeling less about it?
1: Yeah. I mean ultimately is the – the the botched execution that we've discussed already are those not maybe a more honest <laughs> depiction of what's going on? This 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 fallible um, barbaric human effort, not this uh, uh, precision of the wholly blameless machine.
0: Well, I mean, obviously, we're not going to sit here and advocate brutal botched executions no. with Jack Ketch hacking at us with a sword or an axe. But yeah, th- at least with that. Uh, I'm not saying that's preferable, but I do see what you're saying that it's – at least there you're acknowledging that something brutal and weird is going on and you can't just, you know, clean it up in your mind and ignore it because you're hearing the screams and it's splattering on you and it's so brutal that it's almost funny.
1: You know, it's interesting. You know, in this show we talk about innovation and inventions and how how they change the world. And, and so often you, you see that that people have to look back and try to figure out what changed and how it changed us Uh, and here we are uh, hundreds of years later uh, looking back and saying well what did the guillotine mean? What did it do? And what are the ultimate uh, ramifications of
2: this advancement?
0: Well I posit that maybe one takeaway from it is that The truth is, it has showed us that there is no good or clean or sanitary way to kill a person. And any belief that there is, in fact, turns out to be a kind of brutalizing and dehumanizing illusion. All
1: right, so that's it for this week's episode of Invention. If you want to learn more about the show and check out other episodes,
0: head on over to our website, inventionpod.com. Big thanks to Scott Benjamin for research assistance with this episode. Thanks to our audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, let us know how you found out about the show, uh, where you listen from, all that kind of stuff, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com.